Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi Woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today we are so excited to be joined by renowned historian, professor, and author, Dr. Myrnalini Sinha. Dr. Myrnalini Sinha is the Alice Freeman Palmer Professor in the Department of History and Professor in the Departments of English Language and Literature and of Women's Studies at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Dr. Sinha has written on various aspects of the political history of colonial India with a focus on anti-colonialism, gender, and transnational approaches. Her first book, Colonial Masculinity, The Manly Englishman and the Effeminate Bengali, sought to combine British and Indian history and brought gender analysis to bear on questions of high politics to understand a critical moment in the relationship between colonialism and nationalism in India. Her subsequent book, Spectres of Mother India, The Global Restructuring of an Empire, explores the post-First World War changes in the British Empire, especially their implications in India. The book received the Albion Book Prize, awarded annually by the North American Conference on British Studies, and the Joan Kelly Memorial Prize, 2007, awarded annually by the American Historical Association. Dr. Senez also published widely in journals and in edited collections. She has been a recipient of several fellowships, including from the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Institute of Indian Studies, and the American Philosophical Society. Dr. Sinha has also served as a president of the Association of Asian Studies, a scholarly, non-political, non-profit professional association representing all the regions and countries of Asia and all academic disciplines. Dr. Sinha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sonia, for having me. This is such a wonderful opportunity to talk to you about lots of shared interests, and I really appreciate this chance to talk about Gandhi, King, that I teach about, even though I haven't worked on them as as a research scholar, and also to talk about my own work. So thank you. Dr. Sinha, one of the assertions that you make is that democratic peoplehood existed conceptually and practically long before Gandhi entered into Indian politics and began mass mobilizations of Indians in the pursuit of independence from British colonialism. In fact, you actually offer a key example when considering the grassroots protests against indentured servitude, which Gandhi later supported, but did not lead himself. I also just want to offer our listeners a bit of historical context to this topic. The Indian indentured labor system started in the 19th century following the abolition of slavery. 
It was under this system that over 1.3 million Indians worked on plantations in British colonies. Can you speak about this grassroots movement further, including the public circulation of affidavits from indentured workers, which served to mobilize local and national attention? Mm-hmm. Now, that's a wonderful question in that it makes you think a lot about the relationship between kind of horizontal mobilization of people, a grassroots mobilization versus a more vertical mobilization where you have a charismatic leader who mobilizes people to join a movement. And I think both the King and Gandhi example are examples of charismatic leadership. And I think that the two really work together. So in some ways, even though I do make the point that long before Gandhi sort of brought together two elements of anti-colonial protest, an elite level of politics and a more popular level of politics, that long before that, there were already elements of that happening in the Indian context. So when I say that there was a democratic peoplehood before, what I'm kind of suggesting is that There were, of course, long histories of protests at both the elite level and at the popular mass level. But what most of the scholarship has suggested is that it was only Gandhi with his, after his arrival to India from South Africa, that brought together these two levels and then kind of launched his popular satyagrahas against colonial rule. So where I'm deferring from that is to say that actually it was a little bit more complicated. So when Gandhi was in South Africa, much of the scholarship has suggested that he really did have very little to do with, you know, ordinary Indians, the indentured and ex-indentured workers. He was more interested in the traders and the merchants, and most of his struggles were organized around that. And I'm kind of going against that and saying, no, you know, it's true that the only movement where he involved, you know, indentured workers and ex-indentured workers uh, was towards the end of his stay in South Africa. But even before that, he was involved with various efforts to address the situation of indentured workers in South Africa. And Gandhi says it was as early as 1894, almost a year after his arrival in South Africa, when an indentured worker walked into his law office to ask him for help. And Gandhi, in his autobiography, suggests that that kind of information spread across an indentured workers and made him a figure that they were inspired by. I'm not sure if that happened in 1894. But I do for certain know that by the early 1900s, there were indentured workers in British Guiana, in Fiji, who were watching what he was doing in South Africa, who turned to him as as this elite leader who was concerned with the questions of indentured labor and wanting to bring it together with elite anti-colonial protests and transform the movement. So inspired by that, A number of them had been protesting against the conditions of indentured servitude in the various plantation colonies across the British Empire, from South Africa to the West Indies to Fiji. But it was really difficult under the 
very draconian laws of these colonies, these movements to really gain traction beyond particular problems that they were trying to redress. Very quickly, they recognized that it was only when they came back to India, some of these indentured workers, could they really involve themselves in a protest to abolish this indentured system. And fortunately, around the same time, uh, the questions that indentured workers themselves were raising in the plantation colonies, through riots, through sabotage, through petitions to political authorities, through court cases against planters, that all of this activism kind of coincided with an interest in India among elite politicians and political organizations who were also for the first time turning against indentured labor because they saw it as bringing dishonor to India and in particular to non-indentured or elite Indians. So what the indentured workers who came back to India did is to combine those two two movements, the initiatives made by the indentured workers themselves and the elite politicians' rejection of indentured labor uh, because of their own particular interests. So they brought that together to, for the first time, create a people's movement that included people from all kinds of social classes, religious backgrounds, and communities to launch an anti-colonial struggle. So Gandhi had inspired that when he came back to India in 1915. He would take that as one of his first sort of political efforts, even before he would, in the standard scholarship on Gandhi, is that, you know, he became involved in Indian politics in the Champaran Satyagraha that he led for against indigo planters for the sake of Indian peasants. But actually, he was already very actively involved and became the spokesperson for a movement that had already been percolating in India that brought elite and elites and masses together in the cause against indentured labor. So in 1915, when he came, he would address meetings of these organizations. He even threatened at one point in 1917 that if the British government did not abolish indenture right away, he would launch a mass satyagraha against it. Now, the British government, whether it was scared of that threat or its own concerns, decided both because of the of World War One and other considerations to stop the recruitment for indenture in 1917. So Gandhi didn't have to launch a satyagraha for it. But my point about this is that the relationship between grassroots and elite leadership was not an either-or one. They were both informing each other. So Gandhi happened to be the right person at the right time on this indentured labor issue. And he was not somebody who was doing all the grassroots work for it. He was concerned on the issue in South Africa. He would carry it forward in India, but there was already work being done by indentured, ex-indentured, and other ordinary Indians who decided to make common cause on this particular issue. The question of affidavits that you raise is particularly interesting to me, because in some ways, it's 
a major part of a new book that I'm writing about the abolition of indenture. And the affidavits are these documents that the indentured workers provided once they returned to India. And they published these affidavits in the newspapers. I haven't found too many of the affidavits that were published in the newspapers. I found a few of them that were ended up in official archives. I'm still in the search for these affidavits. But the questions they raise for me are very interesting. Is that why did these indentured workers write these affidavits which required, you know, official approval or official justification for their stories? when they had all kinds of other genres in which they could make their opposition to indenture available. You know, folk songs, letters to editors, narratives. There were all kinds of genres through which they could make their views available. But they still chose to sign these affidavits testifying to the fraudulence of the entire system of indenture. And I see that as a very interesting, partly Gandhian, partly, you know, coming out of the experience of indentured workers themselves, in both recognizing the value of an oath, because an affidavit is you have to swear before this public authority that justifies or legitimates your oath, but you also are doing this in a form that one might think is alien to, you know, illiterate workers who had been sent out to indenture. On the one hand, official documents were something that they were used to, because the entire indenture system meant they had to sign various kinds of official documents to, to get to showing that they were consenting to the condition of indenture. So the history of official documents was not something that would have been unfamiliar to them. But yet these affidavits that they signed were not sent to the government. They were not used in law courts, which is where affidavits would be used. But they were published in the newspaper in the sense that they were being addressed to the average Indian public. And these affidavits appeared mainly in vernacular newspapers. So this is also not speaking to an elite audience, presumably. So one of the questions that, you know, intrigues me and something that I'm still trying to figure out and work out is that what was the purpose of these affidavits? At this point, I want to suggest that what the purpose of the affidavit was to produce a kind of interaction between the indentured worker who was writing these affidavits through various levels of mediation. People helped them. Activists were the ones who helped them to write these, to go to government offices to get them testified and attested. But yet, these mediated discourses were meant to kind of show to a reading public in India that they were not just victims. They were people who wanted to be activists, who wanted their stories told. And which is why, I'm. that's my guess at this point, my preliminary guess, 
which is why they would choose to write affidavits as opposed to simply letters to editors or folk songs talking about their trials and hardships. They were converting themselves from victims to real agents and activists for their own cause. And it's in that sense that I was trying to make the point that, yes, Gandhi was an influence. He certain, His footprints can be seen lightly in this movement, but there was also a groundswell of activism on the part of ordinary people, both ex-indentured workers who were returning to India, as well as ordinary Indian men and women who were taking up this cause and helping bring together the level of elite anti-colonial politics and mass anti-colonial politics in a new form, in a form of a people's politics. 